0: Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. It's great to have you here. A reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is provided as a guide only. And with that out of the way, here's Shane. G'day everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Oliver's Insights podcast series. This week of course it's a bit hard to avoid talking about the Reserve Bank which had its first meeting of the year and yet again raised interest rates by another 0.25% taking the official cash rate to 3.35%. This is the ninth consecutive rate hike in a row over 10 months totaling 325 basis points and exceeds the 2002-2008 tightening cycle which amounted to 300 basis points over 71 months. So effectively it's the biggest tightening cycle by the Reserve Bank since the late 1980s. Now in justifying another hike, the Reserve Bank noted that inflation is at its highest since 1990 with underlying inflation higher than expected. This of course was the 6.9 percent rise in the trim mean measure of inflation in the December quarter. The labor market remains very tight wages growth is expected to pick up further and its priority is to return inflation to the 2 to3 percent target range. The Reserve Bank also reiterated that monetary policy operates with a lag and it wants to keep the economy on an even keel. Interestingly, it made no significant changes to its forecasts and still sees growth slowing, that's economic growth that is, slowing to 1.5% this year, unemployment rising to 3.75% and inflation slowing to 4.75% from around 8% in the December quarter. So it sees the December quarter as being the peak in inflation. But compared to its last post-meeting statement in December, the Reserve Bank, Bank has become somewhat more hawkish, most likely as a result of the stronger than expected rise in underlying inflation seen in the last quarter. In particular, and I won't go into the details here, the Reserve Bank noted that the board expects to increase interest rates further over the months ahead, previously it had said over the period ahead, and it has removed the qualifier that is not on a preset course. Now, when that qualifier was inserted late last year, it had been interpreted as opening the door to a pause, whereas now the Reserve Bank seem to have dropped that language and seems intent on raising interest rates further. Now, of course, we've seen another rate hike, so banks are most likely to pass that on to their customers, taking variable mortgage rates to their highest in 11 years. In other words, we've reversed a decade of interest rate cuts in the space of less than 12 months. I guess the question is, are we there yet? Of course, if you read the Reserve Bank statement literally, then they would say no. They've stepped up their hawkishness and signaled further rate hikes in the months ahead. Then again, it's commentary that is the commentary from the Reserve Bank is not necessarily a great guide to what happens with interest rates. And of course, we saw that just over a year ago when the Reserve Bank said that it did not expect to raise interest rates until 2024 at the earliest. And then of course, we, uh, within a few months, started seeing interest rate hikes. What happens to inflation and growth will ultimately be key. Now, of course, given the experience of the last year, one, and I'm referring here to myself, has to be careful and has to be humble in trying to predict the cash rate. It has certainly exceeded levels that I would have thought would be required to slow down the economy and slow down inflation. And that partly reflects the much higher than expected inflation rate that we've seen over the course of the last year and a degree of resilience in households and obviously the lags. In fact, prior to the December quarter CPI release, we thought that the Reserve Bank would leave interest rates on hold. But as we noted in a couple of podcasts ago, we changed our view going into this month's meeting to expect another hike. Now, of course, many argue that there are several rate hikes ahead of us, not just one or two, and we're not at the peak, but there's quite a lot more to go. So I think it is worth considering both sides of the argument on this front. Now, of course, the case for higher interest rates rests on the following. Firstly, inflation is still rising in Australia. We saw that in December quarter, and in fact, in the month of December, the monthly inflation indicator produced by the ABS rose to 8.3%. The labour market remains very tight, with the sum of unemployment and underemployment near their highest since the early 1980s, potentially driving much higher wages and a wage price spiral. And given the 1970s experience, the Reserve Bank needs to keep demonstrating its resolve to get inflation back down, to keep inflation expectations down. Otherwise, it will get much harder to tame inflation. A fourth factor is that simple monetary policy rules, which give us a guide to where the cash rate should be, tend to suggest it should be much higher. For example, the most common rule called the Taylor Rule, which was formulated by a US economist called John B. Taylor, 30 years ago, posits that the official cash rate should be equal to the inflation rate plus the neutral real interest rate plus something like 0.5 times the gap between the current and the target inflation rate and 0.5 times the output gap or the unemployment gap. Now, of course, there's a lot of jargon in that, but I guess the starting point tells you something. That rule basically says that you're starting point for the cash rate is the current inflation rate, which of course is around 8%, plus the neutral real interest rate, which the Reserve Bank assesses to be around 1%. So your starting point from all of that is already around 9%. And in fact, if you apply standard formulation of the so-called Taylor Rule, it suggests that maybe the cash rate should be around 11%, which of course is a level not seen since the early 1990s. And I think if we saw that, it would cause catastrophe in the economy. But nevertheless, those sort of rules do suggest that the cash rate should Higher than is currently the case. A fifth factor is that other central banks, many of them akin to us, centers in being in comparable countries, um, have much higher interest rates. For example, in the US, the Federal Reserve's Fed funds target is in a range of 4.5 to 4.75%. In the UK, the Bank of England sets an official uh, Short-term interest rate of 4%. For the Bank of Canada, it's 4.5%. And New Zealand, the Reserve Bank has set it as 4.25%. Now, of course, ECB, the European Central Bank, is lower than all of these, but it started raising interest rates later. And finally, the economy has so far been quite resilient with households supported arguably by $250 billion or more of extra savings built up in the pandemic lockdown years. People couldn't go and spend, so they saved that money. So that provided a bit of a buffer. Based on all these arguments, it could be argued the official interest rate needs to be a lot higher with several economists expecting the cash rate to rise for above four percent now of course the counter arguments are as follows these basically argue the case that we are actually near the top and it would be dangerous to continue raising interest rates firstly monetary policy operates with a leg we know this in the late 1980s that uh, the reserve bank kept raising interest rates uh, the economy remained strong and suddenly it all fell apart going into the early 1990s but after that, that was after two years of rate hikes and the official cash rate went from something down there around 10% all the way up to 18% with uh, standard variable mortgage rates rising to 17%. And there's good reason for that. It takes a while for cash rate hikes from the Reserve Bank to be passed on to bank customers and for them to actually notice the change and start adjusting their spending. Then there's a the flow and effect to jobs and businesses with feedback effects to households and all of that can take a year or so before we see the full impact. And of course, those lags may have been lengthened by the rise in fixed rate mortgages through the pandemic, which of course saw many people lock in for a couple of years at down around 2% or so. And of course, those people have been protected recently. And we've also seen going through last year, a reopening boost to spending. The so-called revenge spending or revenge travel has masked um, the dampening impact of higher interest rates and cost of living pressures. So those lags are something that you ignore at your peril. Secondly, inflationary pressures are easing globally. If you look at global business surveys, they show reduced delivery times, falling work backlogs, lower freight costs, metal prices and grain prices are lower. Uh, we've got falling input and output prices. The US money supply which was, was surging with double digit growth and preceded the peak in US inflation has now collapsed. If you look at various countries around the world, including the US, Europe, the UK, Canada, they all seem to have seen a peak in inflation. In the US, it peaked around mid-year at 9.1% and is currently around 6.5%. You could argue that Australia is following these countries, particularly the US, by about six months. And the reason we have that lag is that we reopened our economy later. So, for example, the boost in travel costs in the US occurred earlier than it did in Australia because we we reopened our economy later. And we also saw a later surge in energy prices compared to many of these other countries. Maybe, therefore, it would follow that if the US peaked around mid-year, then we will peak in the December quarter just past. Thirdly, there are signs that in fact, Australian inflation is peaking. Whereas business surveys have shown a downtrend in input and output price components. We've got low, those same surveys say so low work backlogs and falling capacity utilization. In fact, we've put together a thing called an Australian Pipeline Inflation Indicator, which is an amalgam of various components based on energy costs, agricultural commodities, semiconductor prices, shipping rates, China PMI, but also Australian based indicators based on surveys and so on and it shows that inflation is likely to fall sharply over the course of the next uh, six months or so. Fourthly, some of the components which drove inflation so high are unlikely to be repeated. For example, the 10.9% rise in December quarter travel costs um, is likely to fade as travel and industry capacity returns. We're seeing a slowdown in the rate of inflation dwelling purchase costs. Petrol prices appear to be stabilizing, fingers crossed on that one, and electricity prices this year may be lower than previously expected with falling gas and coal prices. Fifthly, the so-called Taylor Rule. Very useful framework, but it suffers from a lot of weaknesses. It's assumptions, you vary those assumptions slightly and you get radically different outcomes. It makes no allowance for whether inflation psychology is entrenched or not. If it is like the 1970s and 1980s, then much higher interest rates are needed because by then inflation got entrenched in the system and people expected it to be perpetuated. But the situation today is very, un- is very different to that and I don't think it has become entrenched just yet. And of course, the Taylor Rule makes no allowance for the level of household debt. For example, it is very high in Australia compared to where it used to be. And when you're using that tailor rule, it makes no allowance for that. And nor in making international comparisons, does it make an allowance for the degree of reliance of Australian households on short-dated mortgages compared to other countries. For example, in America, 95% of mortgages are at fixed 30-year mortgage rates. So most American households have been shielded from the rise in short-term interest rates over the course of the last year. Specifically in relation to household debt, and this is of course is where a lot of the pain is, we've seen a three-fold increase in the ratio of household debt to income over the last 30 years, which basically means that a 17% mortgage rate in 1989, which of course preceded the 1990s recession, is roughly equivalent to a 6% variable mortgage rate today. And guess what? Variable mortgage rates are in the process of pushing through that level. Just think about it, a variable rate borrower on an existing $500,000 mortgage, which in fact is the average in Australia, will see after the latest rate hike, an extra $80 a month added to their monthly mortgage payment. And of course, that extra rate hike will bring the total increase in mortgage payments a month up to nearly $1,000. So people paying an extra $1,000 a month. And of course that's an extra $12,000 a year, which is a massive hit to household spending power to why you cut it. And of course in many cities like Sydney, mortgages are much higher than that. And of course, uh, if you get got a $1 million mortgage, that's about a $24,000 hit to your spending power. Roughly two thirds of the 40% of mortgage households with fixed rates will see a reset in their rate, which could take their mortgage rate up by around three fold this year. And of course the RBAs, interest rate hikes have now exceeded the 2.5% mortgage rate serviceability buffer that banks applied up until October 2021 and the 3% since. So many mortgages um, that were taken out over the last few years are now on interest rates or will be on interest rates, which are above the levels that they were judged to be safe at. So all of those things, I think, will lead to a sharp decline in consumer spending through the course of the next year as that huge hit to interest payments flows through to households with a mortgage. And just bear in mind, yes, there are households um, with older people in them, like myself. And of course, there's an argument, well, they're doing okay, and they're getting more money on their bank deposits. Of course, I don't have the bulk of my money in bank deposits, Um, I have it elsewhere, but um, people who do have their money in bank deposits, they've got a bit of a windfall here, they're getting high interest on their bank deposits. The problem there is that older households don't adjust their spending much. This is where all the buffers are. That group of households don't adjust their spending much in comparison to younger households with mortgages where they are a lot more vulnerable to changes in their spending power and their disposable income. So that's why I think this rise in interest rates is gonna have quite a big dampening impact on consumer spending going forward. Sixthly, there's increasing evidence that RBA rate hikes are getting traction. Housing-related indicators are all very weak. House prices have fallen 9% or so, which will weigh on Consumer spending via a negative wealth effect, consumer confidence remains depressed, retail sales are now falling in real terms, and there are some signs of slowing jobs growth. All of these things indicate slowing demand, which will depress inflationary pressures. And finally, Australia is not acting alone, as global interest rates are slowing growth in advanced countries, which in turn will slow global inflation pressures, so other central banks are in fact doing part of the RBA's job for it. In conclusion, while the Reserve Bank now looks likely to hike rates again by another 0.25% next month, continuing much further down the path of rate hikes in response to inflation, which is a lagging indicator, while ignoring the lag flow through of rate hikes to the economy signs of slowing demand and improving supply risks plunging the economy into recession we don't have to have so despite being premature so far in looking for a peak in rates we still see the reserve bank as being close to the peak in terms of interest rates our base case is now for one more 0.25 percent hike next month followed by a lengthy peak or period of rates being on hold as it becomes clearer that the inflationary pressures are easing and growth is slowing ahead of the start of rate cuts, maybe late this year, but almost certainly by early next year. I hope this has been of some value. Until we meet again, adios. To keep up to date with Dr. Oliver and the Simplifying Investing podcast series, be sure to subscribe to your favorite streaming platform. That way you'll never miss an episode.